Very often, what we see is this, this caricature, uh, or it's become almost a stereotype, of Christian people who are judgy. If you're old enough to remember the old uh, Saturday Night Live skit with the church lady on there, you know, that we get that picture of who Christians are. Or maybe your picture of Christians is a little bit different. Maybe your picture is the, the person who has uh, made a lot of claims. They like to talk about their faith, like to talk about Jesus, and yet their life doesn't look any different than anybody around them. They might look at you and tell you how you need to get saved, you need to get your stuff right and give yourself to Christ, and yet you know their life's at least as bad as yours, maybe it's worse. They gossip. They might say nice, pretty things on Sunday and then stab you in the back on a business deal on Monday. Maybe you've been one of those people. Jesus addresses all of those things in Luke chapter 6. So I'm going to ask you to turn there. You're going to want to see it for yourself, not just take my word for it. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible of your own, we've got plenty. We want to make sure that everybody's got one. So just raise your hand if you need a Bible. And Mr. Todd will make sure that, that you've got that. Just stick it up there long enough for him to be able to see it. Because you don't, you don't want to hear what some preacher has to say. We're a Bible teaching church. We want to hear what God says in His Word. Todd, we got some in the back corner over here, I see. Jagger's got them, okay. Uh, but we want to make sure that, that we always have God's Word. And again, I want to reiterate, if you don't have a Bible of your own, that's easy for you to understand, easy for you to read, I'm not talking about one of those little, you know, Bibles that are the size of your phone that have, you know, that you maybe got when you were 12 or, or got when you were a little kid. Not a Bible that's in a, a language that you don't understand. Maybe it's a, an old King James Version. It's a good translation if you were born in 1611. But it probably is not really your heart language. So you want to be able to have a Bible that you understand, that you can work through, that you can write in and take notes in. Because God's Word is not something to sit on your shelf. It's something to build on in your heart and in your life. So you want to have one. Please, by all means, take one of ours. If you have a friend that needs it, give it away. We want to make sure that we are uh, getting God's Word out there. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 6 today. If you're not sure where that is, it's about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. You'll find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And after that, we get some letters. If you're in front of that, you're probably getting names you can't pronounce too well. So slide forward to the names that you recognize. Luke chapter 6. Now, just to kind of catch us up, we've been away from Luke a little bit recently. Luke is the only Gentile writer of Scripture. Gentile is somebody who's not a Jew. So most of us here fit into that category. So the Jews were God's chosen people. And all through history... From, from earliest times, from the book of Genesis until the time of Christ, God dealt with His people through the nation of Israel. That was God's chosen people. He called them out from among the nations. He separated them so that they would be holy, set apart for Him, and they would represent God in the world. They would be the light of God among the nations. God's Word was delivered through them. He gave His law to Moses he spoke through the prophets, and in Israel's history, we see God acting. Now, when Jesus arrives, things shift. Not that God is doing something different, 
But God, in doing what he has always been doing, is also doing something new. It's sort of a, a new stage, if you will, as he's progressing through, uh, through his story of redemption from, from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end. And we're kind of in the middle, on the back end of that. So when Jesus comes as a Jewish man to the Jews, and they reject his good news, his message that, that God is sending through him, a clarification of everything that God has already said, now things shift and the message is opened, not that it was necessarily closed, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but it was opened to the Gentiles, to those outside of Israel. Jesus is seeking out those who are hurting and broken, and lost, and outcast. When we look through the book of Luke, Luke, a Gentile, an outsider to the nation of Israel, to the people of God, has a particular focus on outsiders. So the theme verse, really, for the entire book of Luke, is Luke 19.10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came not for good religious people, but for sinners like me and like you. Now Luke writes this book with a purpose in mind. All the writers of Scripture have a purpose in mind. So we need to kind of figure that out as we're reading each one of the books of the Bible. What is it that they're writing about? Who are they writing to? Why are they writing it? What are they trying to get across? Because as God speaks through them, what they are saying to their original audience is what God is using to communicate to you and me. Luke says in chapter 1, verse 4, as he's writing to his friend Theophilus, Ironically or interestingly, Theophilus means God lover. And Luke writes this to his friend with the intent of this to be read throughout the churches. And he says specifically in verse 4 of chapter 1, I'm writing this that you might know the certainty of what you've been taught. Luke's investigated all this by himself or for himself. He was not one of the original apostles. He was not there when Jesus was born. He, he didn't walk with him. He came along through Paul's ministry. And as Luke is wrestling with the gospel, Luke being a man of science, being a man of knowledge, he wants to see evidence. So he wrestles with this for his own faith. And then he puts together these orderly accounts that are recorded in the book of Luke and what I would call Luke volume 2, the book of Acts. He writes both of these things for the same purpose, to the same person, to establish a firm foundation for our faith. That we can know with certainty what we believe and why it's worth believing. So we see in Luke 2 the, the birth of Jesus. He, he walks us through the birth of John the Baptist and how that relates to the birth of Jesus. So we did back in April, we had our Christmas in April as we looked at, at the Advent and the Nativity and then John the Baptist is going out and he's preaching this baptism of repentance. Baptism before John was a, a uh, Hellenistic, a Greek uh, symbol that they used to identify with a new teaching. So you would be dunked underwater. That term baptism means immersion, completely engulfed. 
They used it in, a, in the military for a ship that had been completely sunk or in, uh, in textiles for a fabric that was completely under the dye, under the water as it's being dyed. So that term meant essentially a dunking, an immersing. And so the Greeks would be baptized to show a washing away of the old way of thinking and now being raised into a new way. So maybe you followed Aristotle and you decided, no, I'm going to switch over, I'm going to devote my life to the teachings of Plato. And you would use this type of a symbol to be able to recognize that. John, like other Jews, but John's is specifically unique in how he does it. John is using this, baptize, this, this baptism symbol to show God's people who have been going their way instead of God's way, that they've repented, to, to identify them with God's way of life, to identify them with repentance. It wasn't commanded by God. It's not part of the Old Testament law. It had been used by other Jews to kind of take a Greek symbol to bring people into the church. Again, not commanded by God. It was an extra. John says, okay, we're going to do this because you're doing your thing when you should be doing God's thing. You have the law, but you're creating a law unto yourself. You're beginning to do what you think is right. That's never gone well for God's people. So he jumps into this act of baptism. And Jesus then also is baptized, not because he had sins to turn from. The word repentance is a, is a changed mind, a new mind. So as he's doing this, Jesus isn't identifying with turning his back on sin that he's engaged in, but in turning his back on sin, period, to live for the Father. It's an identification that he has here. And he says, this is good. And in that moment, the Father speaks audibly, and everybody can hear him, this is my son. This is the one I'm well pleased with. Then the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together in this beautiful scene. And then Jesus in chapter 4 of Luke goes into the wilderness and faces a direct temptation by the devil. You and I get tempted by little things and we think we're overwhelmed. But Jesus gets the devil face to face. And he faces every temptation that you and I face. And yet never sins. He's fully human and fully God. This is what Luke is establishing in the early chapters. He's fully human, fully divine. He's not part man and part God. He's not all man who obeys God. And he's not God alone where he is divine and has no uh, restrictions. He is chosen, as uh, Paul writes in Philippians 2, to empty himself, to humble himself, to become a servant. And as we'll see by the end of the book, even to the point of dying on a cross for us. So Jesus faces this temptation, comes out of it clean. Nobody else in the history of humanity has ever been clean. Since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, every one of us is born with sin inside of us. It's in our DNA, so to speak. So the sins that come out of us are because that's who we already are. All the things that I do with my hands or say with my mouth just are coming from within. Jesus doesn't have that sin inside. So even though the temptation is there, 
He never gives in to it. He does some miraculous things and he, uh, he clarifies the word of God and he identifies himself with, with the prophecies about Messiah and the religious leaders are starting to get fired up. They're starting to come against him. He's upsetting the apple cart. Now, if you've ever uh, been involved or, or observed political leaders or any leaders in any organization who have held on to power for a while, and a, an upstart, a newcomer comes in and says, Hey, uh, I don't know that what you're doing doesn't really make a lot of sense. Starts to question things. People don't always respond really well. These folks thought they had it together. Jesus is saying, you've completely missed the boat. They don't like it. They're looking to shut him down. We get to chapter 6, and they've, uh, they've already come to a place the leaders have where they are going to start plotting to get rid of Jesus. It will only escalate throughout the rest of the book. But in chapter 6, starting with um, verse 20, I believe, let me take a look here, 20, yeah. As we get to verse 20, Jesus gives his first sermon that we have recorded in the book of Luke. He's preaching in the synagogue and other places, but what we have there is an identification. We're not given the content of that. Here in Luke 6, we actually get to listen in, if you will, on this sermon. And I've been challenging you guys as we've gone along to read through chapter 6 uh, once a week until we get finished with it because we need to kind of get this whole picture. Even though we're breaking it down into pieces, we want the whole picture of what he's saying. Let's read it together, starting with verse 20. You can follow along as I read. If it sounds a little different to you, uh, particularly if you have uh, one of our Bibles that we're handing out here, I'm reading from the New International Version, which I always do, but mine is an older edition of it, so some of the words have changed. It's the same original language. Just a tweaking in how they say a few things. Don't let it throw you. Starting with verse 20 of chapter 6. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. The prophets are those who spoke on behalf of God. He's speaking of the Old Testament prophets. So when they came in God's name, bringing God's word, they were rejected. They were persecuted. You see, if they're turning against you because of me, count yourself in good company. He continues in verse 24, But woe to you who are rich. You've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you'll mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Rejoice in that persecution. Don't get frustrated. Don't give in to the, the temptation to lash out. Don't return evil for evil. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. 
If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. In other words, if they take your coat, let them take your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Another rendering, as you wish they would do to you. Sometimes we get that reverse, don't we? Do to others before they do unto you. Is that, you've probably heard it that way. Do to others as they deserve? No. Do to them what you wish people would do to you, the way you wish you would be treated. Not what you deserve, not what they deserve. We need to change the conversation here. He clarifies in verse 32 and following, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Big deal. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student's not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, Lord. And you don't do what I say. I'll show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. It's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice 
It's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed. And its destruction was complete. As we work through this today, there's a core reality that I want you to make sure you see. Don't miss it. If you forget everything else, remember this. There's an inescapable connection between who I am and what I do. We do a lot of talk sometimes, and especially if you've been here, you've heard me say a lot of times, what matters is what's inside. Nothing changes who you are. When you are a child of God, nothing can undo that relationship. You're in a permanent, eternal, everlasting relationship with God that can never be undone, not because you deserve it, but specifically because you don't. Because Jesus took that on himself. It's not in any way about what you have done or what you're able to do. It's all about what he has done. And since you didn't earn it, you can't unearn it. It's only about grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, it's by grace you've been saved. He goes on, Paul goes on in, in 2.8.9.10 to say, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace being the unmerited favor, the undeserved good treatment of God. Faith is just trusting. So we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is how we take hold of it. How we unwrap the present. You're saved by grace through faith. And even the faith, that's not of yourself. It's not like you've got some holy, magical faith that you're better than other people. That's the gift of God. So there's no room for boasting. He goes on to say, though, that we are God's workmanship, created in Him to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. So there's a connection that we see between who we are inside and what we do outside. There's an inescapable connection between who I am and what I do. Say that with me. There's an inescapable connection between who I am and what I do. This is the point that Jesus is making. Now, there are some things that can get very confusing for us because we've made everything very religious. And in our minds, we still get stuck, even those of us who know better, I do it myself, I do it with myself, we get stuck in a performance-based relationship so that we believe that if I don't perform right, if I don't get up to the standard, that God loves me a little bit less. Well, we wouldn't say that because God loves, so I would never use those words, but really it comes down to that. I believe that God's going to punish me if I do wrong things. Let's clear that up real quick. Romans 6.23 tells us what the punishment for sin is. Sin is doing my thing instead of God's thing. It's not, you know, robbing banks and writing bad checks and all that kind of stuff. Those are part of it, but it's bigger than that. Sin is anything that I do apart from God. If I'm doing it on my own, it's not God's will for me, that's sin. So I don't even need a list of rules to keep. I'm already in that boat. So... Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, what sin earns, what sin deserves, some of you know what that is. What is it? Death. It's death. 
God's punishment for sin is eternal death and separation from Him. That's the punishment. When you mess up, if God's going to punish you, that's how He punishes you. That's where it comes from. Here's the thing. Jesus took that. It says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we find life in Him. All punishment for sin has already been poured out on Jesus on the cross. There is no punishment left if you are in Him. If you're not, if you're outside of Christ, then you bear all the weight, all the punishment of your sin. You get exactly what you deserve. Nothing more, nothing less. Although I might say just taking a breath today is more than I deserve but we get exactly what God gives us in that punishment. And apart from Christ, we get that death. The gift of God in Christ is eternal life. He loved us so much that He sent His Son so that all we have to do is believe, trust, take hold of that. He paid for the present. He's giving us the gift. All we have to do is unwrap it, just receive it. That's the trusting, that's the faith. And we have eternal life. Once you have that eternal life, once you've received that gift, the gifts of God are irrevocable. He never takes them back. And when He gives us salvation, He does not take it back. You can't outsin His grace. You can't sin bigger than the punishment that has already fallen on Christ. That's it. But that changes us from the inside out. He's the foundation. Here he's talking about how we build that foundation. And if we are in him, if our roots are in Christ, then what are the fruits that come out? Because the fruit tells us something about ourselves. When he's talking about fruit here, and even when he's talking about foundations, he's talking about actions, doing. And there are some really important things for us to recognize as we go through this. Let me start with, you've got some blanks in your program you can fill in. Our first point here, my actions reveal what I have in my heart. My actions reveal what I have in my heart. Jesus quotes here uh, or, or cites uh, a very prominent theme in Scripture. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Jesus will say it a number of times in the book of Matthew uh, not just in a, a parallel to this, but over and over again, Jesus says something to this effect. What comes out of you is just what's inside of you. What's inside me always is what comes out of me. Picture a well, if you will. All right, So you're dipping a bucket down in a well. Now, not just a well like you've got now. It's the same idea, but it doesn't seem as cool as if you think about it in an old John Wayne movie. Because everything's better in a John Wayne movie, in case you didn't know. So you're in the Old West, and you've got this well. You're out in the, in the western wilderness. You've got this well dug down deep. And you're going to drop a bucket down into this well. And whatever is in that well is what's going to come up in your bucket. You drop it down in there and you get that cool, fresh water that comes up in that bucket. Guess where that water came from? Down in the well. This is not hard math to figure out. Okay? You dump it down in there, pull it up. Magic! There's water! Who knew? 
Well, of course there's water. You put into a well full of fresh, clean water. But what if that well dries up and you pull up that bucket and it's full of mud and sludge? It's because that's what's in the well. What if you pull up water and that water's full of poison? It looks good, but it's deadly. That didn't happen magically on the way up with the bucket. That's what's in the well. And Jesus says that's the same thing for us. In, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in verse 45, you see it there. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, the mouth speaks. My actions reveal what I have in my heart. There's an inescapable connection between who I am and what I do. I can't get away from it. I can fake it for a while, but that doesn't work. Jesus talks about fruit. So there are a couple of things that we see from there. The first one is that the, what is the nature of that tree, the quality of that tree, is revealed, it's shown, it's displayed by the fruit that it bears. Okay? If there's a disease in the root and you have an unhealthy tree, it's not going to produce healthy fruit. Now, don't be confused. Even the best trees will occasionally produce a bad piece of fruit. That a bug gets a hold of it, you know, something happens outside once that fruit is displayed. But what comes from within is good, and sometimes it ends up getting tainted after it's growing. And sometimes, perhaps, a bad tree might squirt out some kind of good fruit. Not, not usually. The way it works is what's in the root is what comes out in the fruit. The very same thing is true of us. Speaking of the quality, good or evil, of our actions, Jesus says this is how we will be defined. We'll see it. No, no good tree bears bad fruit, no, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. You can tell if it's good or bad by the fruit that it grows. So I can understand that my actions reveal what I have in my heart. But there's more. He goes on to talk not just about the quality of the fruit, but the kind of the fruit. So we can recognize the difference between a bad fruit and a good fruit, right? That's a healthy tree or an unhealthy tree. But I can tell that it's an apple tree because what grows on it? Apples. If I see oranges on an apple tree, okay, I'm going to say, wow, that's amazing, right? That, how did those oranges get on that apple tree? Um, no. I'm going to see the oranges and say, okay, that's an orange tree. I might say, why is that in Michigan? But there's, there's a connection between the kind of fruit that comes out of the tree and the kind of tree, right? Something else I see here about my actions. My actions identify who I am in my reality. My actions reveal what I have in my heart. My actions identify who I am in my reality. I can pretend a lot of things. But ultimately, eventually, the truth comes out. My character will be revealed. Jesus says it this way. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Right? So we see the quality issue 
good versus evil, but also the kind issue. I would say worldly versus spiritual. The things that I do can often seem good according to the world's standards. I know lots of people who don't know Christ at all, have never read God's Word, maybe even disdain God's Word, but they hold down a job, they're doing really well, people respect them, they carry themselves well, maybe they have a full head of hair, you know, I don't know. People like that, I guess. They seem to have a, a great marriage. Everything seems to be together. They're well respected. But their value system is based in this world, not in the Word of God. Now, don't miss the fact that as Jesus is sharing these things, he is talking specifically, he's, there's a big picture, but he's specifically talking about what he has just said. This is all one sermon. That's why we read the whole thing together. He is delivering this message, and he's coming right out of, forget about what you see in your circumstances, there's a greater reality. You're worried about whether you're poor or rich, whether your bills are paid, that's, that's small potatoes. Worry about the reality that is eternal, what you don't see. Don't get hung up on when people treat you badly. If they're treating you badly because of Christ, rejoice, man. Celebrate that. That's awesome. You should be excited when you're mistreated for Christ. When people revile you as a Jesus freak. Hey, man, bring it on. I'm a Jesus freak to the core. Because I know I'm going to spend eternity with him. And that's how they treated the prophets. And Jesus says, look, don't, don't, don't get caught up in that. Don't worry about that. That's small. If you want to live in my kingdom, if you want to be my child, you want to look like the Father, <laughs> love your enemies. Forgive those people that you should not forgive. Do what the world would consider to be foolish and reckless. Have a love that reflects the love of God. A love that is pure that is undefiled, that is unselfish, that isn't looking to get pleasure or gain, but to serve others. When you flip the script, when we turn what we know upside down, we see the upside down kingdom of Christ, where the last is first and the first is last, and the least are the greatest. That's why this all connects to the blessings and the warnings and to the forgiving, turning the other cheek idea. When he says don't judge and you won't be judged, he's speaking in these terms so that we get it. I can't expect to get God's grace. I can't expect to be receiving God's grace if I don't know what that is because I live stingy. If I live withholding forgiveness, then God's going to measure out his grace in the same amount that I'm measuring it out. If I'm going to pray for God to forgive my sin, but I don't forgive others their sin, then I don't even know who He is. I've totally missed it. If I have His grace inside me, in my well, then when I pull up my bucket to fill the buckets of others, what do you suppose is going to pour out of my bucket when I dip it in the grace well? Grace. If I've received grace, then I need to pour out grace. The things that I do with my life reveal who I belong to. Not just the quality, but the kind. 
My actions identify who I am in my reality. It's one thing to talk about following Jesus. But if I'm not doing it, then it's just all lip service. It's like political promises, right? Because we all believe politicians when they promise us stuff, because they always follow through, right? How sad that we've come to be comfortable with promises that we don't expect to be fulfilled. Jesus says, what you say, if it doesn't match up with what you do, the whole thing's a sham. I don't even know you. Check out what he says here. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? If you're saying he's your Lord, your master, the ruler, the governor of your life, and you're not doing what he says, then you are a liar. You are not a Christ follower. You are a liar. And as I point my finger out, I've got three fingers pointing at me. Zyger, if you say he is your Lord and you don't live like him, you are a liar. Let's stop lying. The things that come out of me are the things that are in me. Always. It's the only way. My actions reveal what I have in my heart, the quality, good or bad, good or evil. My actions identify who I am in my reality, who I belong to. Where do I get my values? Do I look like daddy or do I look like the world around me? Thirdly, my actions build what I need in my struggle. My actions build what I need in my struggle. 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'll show you what he's like who comes to me and hears my words, right? We hear with our ears, we take it in, and puts them into practice. Hears my words and puts them into practice. Keep this in mind. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came... The torrent struck that house and he could not shake it because it was well built. Now, if you're building a house, you know you've got to have a foundation for it. Hearing God's word, coming to church, learning, studying, even really deep, meaningful study. I'm not just talking about sitting around, maybe I listen to a sermon here and there and, and I get a little bit. If I really know the stuff... I go to the Wednesday night designed for discipleship and we learn how to use tools to, to dig more from God's word. That's all great. But if it doesn't transform me, if I'm not actually living that out, then I haven't built a foundation. I've only gathered materials. I'm working on fencing at our farm and I, uh, I've dug some holes and I set some posts and I've got some, some boards there to make gates and I've got some more posts to be able to brace it up. And you know, I, I picked them up uh, at least a month ago, and they're in a pile in the barn. You know what they're not doing? They're not keeping my cattle where they need to be. Because it doesn't matter how much material I gather if I don't use it, if I'm not building with it. I came out of coaching retirement this year, so my brother and I could coach seven, eight, and nine-year-olds in football. It's a little different than high school, but as we're doing this, we have to get a foundation laid. 
We have to teach them fundamentals. We have to get this basic uh, knowledge and understanding before they can ever actually get to real football. And if they don't, we can have a thousand plays in our playbook and it means nothing because we've got to build from the ground up. Now, I've told these kids everything there is to know in the world of football. I'm exaggerating because I don't know everything there is to know. But we've taught them so much stuff. They've heard it because they've physically been there with their ears taking it in. And at least three of them have actually listened and paid attention to it. And yet it doesn't matter. We have to practice. Because if I don't put it into practice, if I don't use it, I'm not going to actually build with it. I can tell you how to hit a baseball. I can tell my son Gabriel, who, as you heard earlier, plays baseball at Cornerstone University, I can tell him how to hit a curveball. But you know what? I can't hit a curveball because I don't practice it. And all the words mean nothing. My daughter's been working on her serve for volleyball, and she knows, she's heard, she's been taught how to do it right. But she doesn't always do it right because she's still learning how to practice it. It's an old saying in coaching, you don't practice until you get it right. You practice until you can't get it wrong. You ever wonder why your life is a shambles right now? Man, I, I trust Jesus. I've been going to church. but I can't seem to get right. I can't seem to get my life right. My relationships are a mess. Things just seem to go haywire. Because there's a difference between hearing it and knowing it and actually doing it. And if I'm not practicing God's word every day until I don't just get it right, but until I can't do it any other way. The old water is out of my well and all I have is the living fresh water of Jesus in me because I've driven it out by filling that well with God's word and actually applying it. If I don't do that, then I'm never going to get my life right. Man, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Great, stop praying. Get up and get to work. Don't stop praying, but get off your knees and get moving because all the prayer in the world without action to accompany it is a waste because God, like a good father, is saying, yes, I love you, child. Now get up. you got chores to do. Not because that's going to earn us points with God. Our actions don't make us who we are. Our actions reveal who we are. If I hang oranges on an apple tree, it's just ornaments, right? We do that every Christmas. The tree's still dead. Might be pretty. It's a pretty corpse standing in your house. A little morbid, actually. <laughs> if we do that with our lives, it's the same thing. You can put all the nice christian acts in the world. You can say all the nice things. You can say all the, all the praising things. And you can uh, sing songs and all that kind of stuff. Memorize verses and all of it. But if you're just hanging ornaments on the tree, you're still dead. If you're a living tree, because you've trusted Jesus Christ to change you from the inside out, you're renewing your mind with God's Word. And the Spirit of God in you will transform you from the inside out. 
And you will begin to build with the materials that you've gathered until you have a firm foundation. There's an inescapable connection between who I am and what I do. Why does this matter? I mean, ultimately, when we're talking about all this stuff, we've got to figure out why this matters. Or we're just hearing. We're just going through the, the motions. I have to know what reality is. And I have to begin to align my life and my thinking and my actions with that reality. If I'm out of step with God's will, then I am living in conflict with the reality of the universe that God designed. If I'm out of step with God's will, I am living in conflict with the reality of the universe that God designed. I cannot expect things to get better because I'm living outside of the design. It matters because if I'm trying to fake my way through life by forcing actions on my outside, I'm going to control my behavior. I'm going to look the part. I'm going to act the part. But I haven't changed what's inside. I haven't surrendered to Christ. Then all of it becomes a waste. And I'm still dead. But if I am alive, if I am alive and united with Christ, and my roots are in Him, and I'm feeding with my roots on the nutrition of His Word, and the beautiful refreshment of the living water of God's Spirit, then I will always produce fruit in season. That doesn't mean I'm producing fruit all the time. Trees don't do that, do they? But I will always be in the process of producing this fruit. And you will see a change, a difference in my life. The things that come out of my mouth are from the things that are in my heart. If I've given Christ my heart, but my mouth still smells like a sewer, if my mouth still reflects what used to be who I was, then I've got to start doing some changing. How do I do that? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, make yourself a living sacrifice. Give up your pride. Give up you. Let Him take over. And you'll be transformed from the inside out by renewing your mind. I have to gather the building materials to be able to build a foundation. But if I only gather the building materials, I still don't have a foundation. If I'm building with the materials of this world, I don't have a foundation. And if I'm building a life with no foundation at all, I should expect collapse. That's how it works. What difference does it make in my daily walk to know these things? If I know, if I know that I don't earn God's favor with my good deeds, I can feel a lot freer from guilt. If I know that Jesus has paid the price for my sin, and all I have to do is trust in that, take hold of it like it's my parachute, and I'm plummeting to earth from a plane and I'm clinging to this parachute of His work on the cross for me, His grace, what a freeing feeling that is. And if I have received that grace, and it is in me, and I recognize the incredible debt which has been forgiven me, 
how can I not, with exuberant joy, let that come overflowing from my soul into my actions? If I've been forgiven much, then I will forgive much. That's the nature of things. It changes how I behave and it changes the motives behind it. And when those motives begin to change and the works become fruit coming from within as opposed to ornaments hanging on a dead tree, then it's sustainable. Then it's not that temporary fix that we see so often. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because it's been your story. You get fired up about Jesus and, and your emotions get captured at some point. Whatever, whatever leads you to that journey, maybe it's that your life has fallen apart and your, your spouse has left you or people have died or you got caught in your sin and you lost your job or, or, or... But you came to that place where you were shattered and you said, Jesus, I need you. And it was great for a while. And before you knew it, you were right back to the same stuff. Guys, emotion doesn't do it. Internal change does it. Now, there's work involved in building a foundation, to be sure. But if you don't have the right materials, it won't matter. If you have the right materials, and you're not putting them into practice, you're not building, it won't matter. My walk changes when my heart changes. And if my walk isn't changing, I better take a look down deep into that well. Because I'm only pulling up what's already inside. There is an inescapable connection between who I am and what I do. If we really want to experience the joy of Christ, if you really want to get over the top, Trust and obey. Sounds simplistic, doesn't it? It's anything but. It is simple. It's not complicated. It's just costly. It's hard. It's difficult to let myself go. The problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. I've got to put it back on. But my heart has changed. And I'm united with Christ. And even when I blow it, that relationship's not undone. I've got five amazing children who sometimes seem a little less amazing. Sometimes my amazing children do things that disappoint their parents. But you know what? They're still my children. I don't love them any less at all. They cannot ever escape the reality, even if they try, they can't escape the reality that I'm their dad. That's a relationship that is never undone. That's true of our relationship with God. And if we will learn to trust and obey, man, that is the way to be happy in Jesus. To trust Him with our whole heart. 
Let him do the doing. And let the root in Christ produce the fruit in our lives. Let's pray together. Father God, you have called us to be yours. You've given us unspeakable grace in Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can we wrap our minds around that? How can we understand this great sacrifice? The greatest love that's ever been shown. Very rarely, very rarely would we even die for a righteous person. But sometimes we might die for a good person to sacrifice for what we see as a greater cause. But to die for an enemy? That's too big for my mind. And yet you tell us that your son Jesus Christ who knew no sin, laid himself down while we were still sinners. Not cleaned up, but undeserving, unable to change on our own, dead in our sins. And he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, help us to recognize that in Christ we are your righteousness. To bear fruit in keeping with that. Teach us to trust and obey. Pray this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.